Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 192 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen. This week on my Landscape Photography Podcast, I was joined by Michelle Bates. Michelle is known as the Queen of Holga. She is obsessed with plastic and toy cameras. Michelle has been passionate about photography since she was very young and learned her way around the camera in 1991 at the main photographic workshops where she first discovered the Holga. Her book, Plastic Cameras, Toying with Creativity, was published in late 2006 and a second edition was published in October of 2010. Michelle and I discussed some really interesting topics this week, including what is a plastic camera, uh, plastic cameras and how they distill the photographic process down to creativity, what makes a good photographer, advantages of toy cameras, quirks of the toy and plastic camera, performance photography, collaboration with other artists, and more. Over on Patreon this week, Michelle and I talk about the importance of honing our skills of writing to improve our photography. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Michelle Bates, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Yeah, I, uh, I'm super excited for this one because it is way outside of our, our normal kind of conversation set um, in terms of uh, strictly being landscape photography, and I'm really excited to to see where this goes. <laughs> Great. Yeah. So for people that don't recognize you or aren't familiar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into photography. Um, well, let's see. I definitely did not start off as an artist. Um, I grew up being very into science and I got a college degree in science and biology and was always like, I'm not a creative person. Um, and then, uh, but I had this little interest in photography. And after I graduated college, I went to the main photographic workshops as it was called then. And, um, and I got into it and I can talk more about it later, but, um, I still do some, um, science work as a medical mm -hmm. writer. I love mm -hmm. science and I always have, and it's kind of part of who I am. Um, but, uh, I grew up, uh, in New Jersey and I moved out to, uh, Washington state, um, in 1992. And so I've been a Pacific Northwesterner ever since, um, and have, uh, gone down lots of different roads with my photography, which has been really tons of fun. Yeah, it seems like the Pacific Northwest is a hotbed of creativity. <laughs> it is. It's very artsy, and I've been involved in that a lot of ways. And then there's also this weird thing that there's a lot of scientists who are into photography, too, which is another parallel that I appreciate. Yeah, that's actually been one of the interesting realizations I've had in this podcast is tons of my guests have a background in either engineering or, or science. It's a techie art. It is. It is. Mm -hmm. This is true. It. Uh, I think it's because it, it's just so approachable from a tech technical standpoint. Well, and a lot of people just get really into the technical side of it. I mean, you know, there's there's so many people who you talk to them, they'll talk to you about photography, and they'll just all they want to talk about is the equipment. Um, right. And that's uh, that happens in, in other arts too. You know, what kind of brushes and paints do you use? But I think more so in photography, and there's people who just just come at it from that angle. Yeah, and people get super hyper focused and obsessed with equipment and lenses and right, which you is know, pretty hilarious because I a lot of what I do is with these toy plastic cameras, and then people laugh at me and laugh at us, and, and you know what? But I have this really fancy, expensive camera, and I'm like, well, okay, what do you do with it? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, that's awesome. So let that what a perfect segue that is. I would love for you to tell us what in the heck is a plastic camera? <laughs> well, 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 there you would get a lot of different answers to that. So um, when I was at the main workshops, um, I was sort of handed this camera called a Holga, um, which weighs, you know, an, a couple of ounces um, and is this blocky, really low quality plastic thing. Um, and um, they, okay, so they were kind of made as, in some ways they were made as toys and in some ways they were made as very cheap cameras for um, like the whole, they're, the Holgas are not the first of this genre. Um, the Diana camera and then its clones were made in the 60s. Um, and they got taken up by fine art photographers around the world um, and appreciated for their kind of low, their cheapness for one and their low quality, but also this, this something, something about the images that people liked. Um, and they started getting used in art schools as an equalizer, because then as now, even then when, you know, there wasn't like autofocus or digital cameras, um, there was still a difference between people with money who could afford better equipment and people who couldn't. And when you hand everybody the same really cheap, crappy camera, um, and say, go out and shoot with it, then you can really get to the heart of what kind of images are you making? And it's not, it becomes less about the equipment. Um, so the Holgas um, were created in the early 80s in China, and they were meant to be mass market in China. But since they're for 120 film, the timing was kind of off because that was sort of around when 35 millimeter film became popular. And so they never really took off in China. But but some of those that community and the people in the United States who had used the Dianas before and those weren't available anymore took up the Holga as the new generation of toy camera um, that's cheap and affordable and light and you don't have to worry about it. Um, and they make these these interesting looking images. Yeah, I mean, maybe describe for us what is interesting about those images versus what a typical camera might create. Okay, so for one thing, um, default photographs, what everybody sort of thinks of as a photograph are rectangles. Um, you know, and of a certain proportion, like 35 millimeter is, is, was sort of this proportion that was invented, you know, when they made the cameras, I don't know why, but it became like the default of this is what a picture is. There were some square cameras in different formats, but mostly the rectangle. Um, and even the digital cameras kind of emulate that, right? They keep that same format and call that like normal. Um, now, there's nothing really default for an image about to be a rectangle. So there are lots of different types of toy cameras and some of them do use 35 millimeter um, film, but the main crop of them use 120 film and they make square images, um, which in a way is, uh, well, and, and the images um, and, and most normal photography, kind of standard photography is like sharp edge to edge and there's straight lines and you want the lenses to be really high quality. So everything is really crisp and clean and focused. And the toy cameras are kind of the opposite of that. So the images will vignette, they'll get darker in the corners, they're kind of fuzzy, the lenses are plastic, there's like a single plastic lens um, without any coatings, so they're not very sharp. They don't really focus like a regular camera. <laughs> um, so there is, um, so they're much more dreamy and um, have this vignetting, which to me is, is kind of more how we view the world. Now, we, we do tend to view the world in a rectangle if we've got two functional eyes, but 
things generally are brightest and sharpest in the middle, and then our field of vision does vignette around the edges. So in that way, it kind of is a little bit more of, of how we see in the world. Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about it quite that way before. Uh-huh. <laughs> It almost seems like that style of fuzziness and kind of, I don't know, you know, not in focus style is almost taking us back into like the periods of pictorialism a little bit. Yeah. You know, it's, there are lots of different types of painting. There's photorealism and there's, you know, all the different, all the different ways that people paint. And so why not have different ways that photography can be doesn't all have totally. to be really sharp and you know you you're you're a landscape this is your a landscape photography community probably most of the people are into the images being the highest quality possible and using the best lenses and all that and this is this is not that and you can still make landscape photographs with it i had a show of nature photography that was up earlier this year kind of when everything shut down so not many people got to see it but you know i do nature and landscape photos too they just look really different than most others <laughs> <laughs> i can i can totally imagine i i got to look at some of that stuff on your website and it was very interesting to me anyway because i think what i like about that style anyway is that it takes away that expectation of perfection mm-hmm. and it boils things down to a more i guess an artistic presentation that doesn't rely on the technology to to succeed and i was one of the things i was really hoping to talk about was kind of this emphasis on the artistic process um through the equalization of the equipment because i find that to be super fascinating actually i think that would that makes for a completely interesting conversation yeah and and what what is also interesting is that once you get into the holga world or the toy camera world in general um, you'll see a lot of the images look the same and people photograph a lot of the same stuff and they're just sort of taking advantage of what the camera does. And after a while, that gets kind of boring too. And so when I was researching my book, so I did a book that was is a compendium of toy camera photographers and the history and genre and all this stuff. And And the type of photographers I was looking for were the people who transcended the kind of default of what the camera likes to shoot and the default topics and subjects that people like to shoot and apply their own artistic eye to it. And there are a lot of people doing amazing, amazing work, but you can't just rely on the camera to make the images for you, either with high quality gear or low quality gear. (laughs) Absolutely. So what, what does that mean you have to rely on? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, as an artist, you know, you want to um, develop and this, this is why it's, it's, it's frustrating when people are in photography in the field of photography are so obsessed with the equipment, because what they really need to be doing is take whatever gear they have, it doesn't matter, get to know it really well, so that you don't have to be focused on thinking about it, and then develop your art- artistic eye. And whatever that is, you know, what are you interested in? What do you like to um, photograph? I mean, it's always a challenge to tell people like, go out and make interesting photos in your backyard, because a lot of people were like, well, no, I'm going to go photograph in India, because everything is interesting looking there. And right, that's kind of true. And it doesn't make you a better photographer, necessarily to go and make good pictures there. Whereas if you try to make interesting pictures in your environment that you're in all the time, that you're not used to looking artistically at, that's when you can start developing what um, 
what your vision is or figure out what that is out in the world if it's people or portraits or you know uh, documentary or landscape or whatever whatever the topic is or the subject you have to try things too yeah that's interesting this is going to lead us down a very interesting path of conversation for sure that's on top of mind for me and a lot of other photographers right now um and we'll get into that however uh based on what you just said uh i would be really curious to hear what do you think makes a good photographer um (laughs) you know good has a lot of definitions. So if you are, you know, a school portrait photographer, you know, or, or even if you're a portrait photographer, then the idea is to be able to connect with people and get their essence to come out in the picture and make them comfortable and stuff like that. Um, if you're a landscape photographer, it's probably being able to get up early in the morning and sit for long periods of time and wait, like also for wildlife photography, which I don't have the patience for. Um, right. Um, when one thing I thought of when you were saying that last, it was that um, something that I used to do and I should do more when I get in the darker more is make work prints, like just shoot, be out in the world and shoot, 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 shoot all the different things, find the images in my film. Did I mention that these are film cameras? These are film cameras. And I process in the dark room um, and I make prints and I take all the prints that I've made over whatever period of time and spread them all out on the floor and look at the images and see, first of all, which images appeal to me, but what um, commonalities and threads I see through them and series. And then that sort of teaches me something about one, what I'm good at shooting and two, what's of interest to me. Um, And then I kind of let those lead me uh, down paths to make other series. Um, I love that. Yeah. But, but learning how to edit your work and look at your work and see what's good and having, I mean, I've also paid a lot of attention over the years to what people like of my work. You know, I don't live in a vacuum um, and the stuff that people respond to. Um, So working with other people is good and learning and, um, you know, and like, like I said, to be a good photographer, it doesn't matter what your gear is, but you have to know it well. You really have to know it well enough to either use all the bells and whistles on it or to compensate for them if your camera doesn't have any bells and whistles. Um, and so understanding some of the basic uh, photographic elements in the world of light and how, how light works and how, how shutter speeds and f-stops and, and all of those interrelate to getting a proper exposure, but also how to you know, your depth of field and your blur and all those things. So having a good understanding of all those um, is really, really important no matter what your gear is. Because when you're working with a Holga, there's nothing to adjust on the Holga. So you have to figure out how to, how to make the exposures and the images that you want, like from the outside, instead of using adjustments inside the camera. So there's literally no adjustments at all. Um, there's a, there's a shutter, which has one shutter speed. It's a spring and a bulb setting. (laughs) So (laughs) that's it. And there is an aperture arm, which kind of sort of works, but not really. So pretty much there's one aperture, maybe two, Um, but they have a hot shoe or a built-in flash. So you can use flash. Um, You know, you can use different speeds of film. You can adjust the processing of the film. You can use external light sources. You can use neutral density filters to take light away. There's all those kind of things that you can do if you understand how light interacts with the film. Um, and that makes sense. Yeah. And either make the adjustments while you're shooting or while you're developing the film. Yeah. No, what I was 
trying to get out earlier about, you know, what makes a good photographer is uh, it seems like in the Holga world anyway, at least from your perspective and totally feel free to correct me if I misinterpreted what you said, is that the what makes a good photographer is often like not your ability to to use the camera, but to to see something that other people might not be able to see and present it in an artistic way that is appealing to to yourself and and or others. And I think so. I'm just going to say that, and you can tell me if I'm onto something there or not. Sure. I mean, I think that's that's valid and relevant to all types of photography for sure. I mean, not all photography has to be original, right? Sure. But if, if you, as an artist, that that's something that's important to you or that you want to be able to stand out, then being original is part of that. Um, and if, <clears throat> if you want to do something that's within a genre or is something like, you know, commercial or photojournalism that has sort of strictures around it, then you want to be able to play in that field. Um, although, you know, some people stand out within their field. Some, there are people using toy cameras in commercial photography and fashion and photojournalism. And, and usually it takes some convincing to let the editors and the art directors, um, uh, consider those pictures. But, um, it's great when people can break out of the bounds of what's expected. Yeah. And in the world of fine that, art photography is, is like that. It's, you know, originality is very important. Yeah. Would you say that, uh, plastic or toy cameras are, are popular? Um, yes, yes. I, I'm not sure what they're up to right now. They're, they've gone through phases. And okay. um, when I started using them in 1991, and there was this community of people around the country and around the world using them. And, and to be honest, I can't remember how we all knew each other because there was no internet then, but we did. <laughs> <laughs> but I did know people all over the country. Um, who were doing it and we had shows and we sent slides to people and prints and then we you know it was it was all that old-fashioned fangled stuff Um, but it was like quite the community and sometime in the 2000s they became very popular and there was a couple of things the Lomo company started selling plastic cameras around the world okay and um, Urban Outfitters started carrying their stuff and so uh all of a sudden like for 15 years I'd been doing this and nobody knew what these were uh and all of a sudden people were like oh yeah I saw Holga at this store what was it and I'm like Urban Outfitters they're like oh yeah that's right um so (laughs) I my timing was really good I ended up doing the book Plastic Cameras Toying with Creativity um in 2006 and then a second edition in 2010 and so there was a huge wave um during that time of people all over the world using them in Loma Hut stores all over the place. And um, people were doing shows. There, there are shows that have been going on for a very long time, like the crappy camera show in New York, but there were toy camera shows popped up all over the place. And a lot of them are still going. Um, a lot of which I've been in or juried. And, um, you know, and a lot of people bought them and then were like, gosh, this thing kind of sucks. And then they never use them again. But a lot of people, (laughs) because they were sold in Urban Outfitters, right? So like all sorts of people got them. And then they were like, wait, film, what do I do with this? I don't, you know, and it's a pain and places aren't processing film. So uh, a lot of them got sold. And but a lot of people got very, very into it. And there were a lot of online forums and sites that people were sharing work, you know, like Flickr was huge. And then the Lomo site um, back in the day. And then that's 
moved. But also this very interesting thing happened where um, there was like hipstamatic and then Instagram. And those, if you, if you look at like the base images from what those started where they were like square kind of fuzzy edge pictures. And those were based on yeah. the Holga and the toy cameras. And, totally. and Instagram guy actually used one when he was studying abroad. Like there's, it's written about. So after a whole bunch of years of doing this, some people knew about the cameras from Urban Outfitters. But then after a certain point, it was like, okay, so you all know that app in your pocket and how those photographs are square, even though your phone is a rectangle. So it's not necessarily a native format on there. And they're kind of fuzzy edged. That is a direct descendant of this type of photography. And so all sorts of people were seeing that way. And I think that's kind of past. Um, mm-hmm. but there was a, there was a really huge wave that went on a lot longer than I thought it was going to. And I think it's coming back around again. Um, I think there was a lull and I think it's coming back and, and it's part of the sort of anti-technology analog wave. So there's, it'll come, keep coming back around and, you know, photography in general and analog photography and film photography is going to continue as a specialty and not a mainstream photography art, but uh, it's not going to go away. So, so as if someone were to own one of these and they had no idea how to process or purchase the film, how difficult is that? It depends where you live. So okay, um, you can buy film online from anywhere. Um, so even though a lot of companies have stopped making film, uh, other companies have started making film, but either way, now that you can buy film online, even if there's just one company somewhere making it, like anyone can get it. Um, Freestyle Photographic Supply is very, very dedicated to analog photography. Um, I'm on their advisory board, so <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll say that. But also they're like very, very dedicated to making this, making the equipment and the gear and the darkroom stuff available. But they're, um, So if you live in cities, you, if there's a photography store left, you can buy darkroom stuff. Uh, it is not hard to process film at home you don't need a darkroom. You can do it in a bathroom. Um, people think that you can't do any of this at home unless you have a darkroom. But the thing is, you can actually process film fairly easily at home. And then you can scan the images and work with them on the computer if you don't have access to a real darkroom. But you can also mail order film um, and get it processed. Or some towns will have places that can process or send it off for you. Gotcha. And you said it's a 120 film? Um, the main normal standard Holga and Diana's take 120 film, but there are lots of other toy cameras and some of them take 35 millimeter film. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, what, what would you say are some of the advantages of using a toy camera? Um, well, like I said, they're cheap is, is a really great one. <laughs> <laughs> like really, you know, like that makes a difference. Um, and it sounds like they weigh nothing. They're light. So like if you're yep. backpacking, you could totally rock some toy toy camera action. Exactly. I mean, then you have to take film with you. So that takes up extra space and a little more weight. Um, I mean, you know, and digital cameras are so light. I mean, everybody's got one now, right? So you don't, it doesn't, a camera doesn't weigh anything anymore because everybody already has a phone with them. But this is if you want to have something else. Um, they're light. They're cheap. You don't have to worry about them if they break. Like, that's really nice. They're also not intimidating to people. So if you want to photograph people or places where, you know, sort of real cameras are discouraged or banned uh, or people are just not comfortable with it, this is the kind of thing where you pull it out and people laugh at you 
<laughs> you know, and so it really helps. I did, I photographed for a couple of weekly newspapers out here for years and years. And, and it was just such a great icebreaker. People are, you know, sometimes I'd like throw it to them, <laughs> you know, like here, cat. <laughs> what? Anyway, it's a great icebreaker. <laughs> uh, all those things. In terms of uh, its usefulness in the landscape photography world, it might be a really interesting tool to use on a workshop where you might have, let's say, five or 10 students and your focus of your workshop is on the artistic process and like finding your vision. I think that could be a really interesting thing to like, you know, hand hand one out to everybody and have them just explore their surroundings to make just to make images of things that they find interesting, but but kind of relieve themselves of the of the uh, you know f stops and shutter speeds and ISOs and all that stuff, and just just create you know absolutely I think- it it is great for that for in a workshop setting there are some limitations working with Holgas because you have to get the film processed. Um, sure. Now I've taught lots and lots of workshops and you know you just have somebody run if you're doing black and white or you have somebody just process the film overnight and either scan it or do contact sheets um or if you have color film and there's a lab in town you can do it so it's a there's a, a little bit of limitations on workshops versus digital which is just so easy to review but but all those things that you said are totally true it, it it's kind of amazing to me even now i've been doing this for how many years <laughs> you know 30 years <laughs> and um, I pull out the Holga and I look at something and I just go click. And then it's like, well, now what, you know, there's nothing to adjust. You can't look at it on the back of the camera. You just sling it back over your shoulder and keep walking. It's, it's really kind of trippy. Yeah, definitely. What, what do you, what would you say are some of the, uh, some of the quirks of toy cameras? Um, well, they, uh, like I said, they vignette, they have, a lot of them will have light leaks inherent and that's something some people like um, just to see how they, how they show up as kind of fun things in the images and other people try to make them go away. Um, They uh, where, you know, they're, they're sort of all quirk. Like that's what they are is just one big box of quirk. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you can get weird colors with them. Uh, You can use color film, you can use infrared film even, and they work pretty well. The exposures are going to be all over the place unless you're really very controlling over it. Um, yeah, it's uh, it, you, you kind of have to, if you understand, like I was saying, if you understand the equipment, if you understand the quirks, then you can work with them and not be like, oh, I can't believe this camera does that. Because if, if you're like that about the things that the, that the Holga and the Dianas and stuff, you're not going to have fun with it. And there's, it's just so much about having fun it's the kind of thing where you can like give one of these to a, a landscape photographer who's been shooting for 40 years with, you know, a, a view camera or really expensive fancy gear and they just kind of get giddy, you know, <laughs> it's just like, you're kidding, right? <laughs> what? And then they make images that they like with it. It's like, wow, wow, it's amazing. Yeah, I, th- I just like, I like what you said before that it, that it kind of, it's like the great equalizer, right? I mean, it, it completely eliminates the technological barrier um, for the artistic process. And it just forces people to sit with that instead, which I think is a very interesting I mean, it, approach. It sort of 
it sort of does that and it does the opposite of that in a way. Like if you use uh -huh. any kind of modern camera, you don't have to think at all. You can set it on auto and it will do all the thinking for you. So in that sense, you know, there's you don't have to think at all. And with the Holga, you kind of don't have to think, but you might not end up with anything good because it might be too light or too dark <laughs> or something else. And so that, like I was saying, if you understand the quirks and you can adjust, you know, either using faster film or using a flash or doing a longer exposure with the bulb setting um, or any of these things that you can do to adjust. A, a lot of people like, like the people that buy the cameras at Urban Outfitters, you know, they'll, they get frustrated because they get a bunch of pictures that are too light and too dark and they're just used to everything coming out looking like a photo um, on their phone or whatever point and shoot camera that they have, because those have gotten so incredibly good. So it's sort of, it's sort of like right. what you said, and it's also its opposite. <laughs> yeah, I know, but it's interesting, right? Because if you were to tell somebody, I mean, it's kind of the same of approach as like forcing somebody to just use a prime lens, right? You're you're creating a limitation, which then forces. Right. That's the core. Ways, which... Thank you for saying that. Cause that's something I should have at the tip of my tongue. Right. It, it is those creative limitations that within there, I think that that helps people create art. And, and I have a lot of examples of that in my life. Like there's a, I, I also photograph a lot of theater and performance work. And um, there's a festival in Seattle here called the 1448 festival. And they create 14 plays in 40, 48 hours. And there's all these ridiculous restrictions um, where like they pick the theme at random and the writers have to write a 10 minute play and then they pick all the actors at random and the director and then they have to rehearse and do the whole thing within a course of a day and do it that night. And it's, it's completely absurd and ridiculous. And yet you get this amazing art coming out of it. And I started doing photography within that, also giving myself restrictions and limitations, like shooting it with film and then processing the film and making print all that day. And, um, but that's, that's, like kind of one of the main things that the toy cameras are about creating these restrictions and seeing what you can do within those artistically. Yeah, no, I think that's such a good way to, to uh, teach yourself how to be more creative because I don't know if this has been your experience, but once you go through an exercise like that, those things that you learn through that process, you can apply without the mm -hmm. restrictions in place. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, let, man, let's talk, let's, what a perfect segue that was. I would love to hear more about uh, your performance photography because that is something that I have never, ever, ever done except for like maybe trying to photograph my son's play when he was like seven years old or something. <laughs> it's like hard, that. isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's, it's really a specialty. Hard. <laughs> I mean, I think to be good at most things in photography, they're all little specialties. Like I also photograph artwork and that's a specialty. And, you know, people who photograph like food or portraits. I've, I've worked for a friend of mine who does pregnancy photography, kind of high-end black and white fine art stuff. And I've worked with her and kind of use her vision in that, but they're, and they're all very specialties. So photographing um, live performance, I do this, mostly this realm of circus and vaudeville and physical theater, because those are the people I know. And it's also the work that I really, really love. A lot of solo theater and ensemble created works. Um, it and in so in that realm, this is this is where I'm like split in half. So one side is like the gear doesn't matter, and you know, create the art with the low tech. And on the other side is no, I actually have the really good digital gear, and I upgrade as the um, high ISO uh, work uh, abilities improve because I'm shooting 
um, live theater and things like I shot for many, many years with Nikon SLRs and they're kind of loud and I'm always very aware of that. And I try to um, be aware that as a photographer during a live performance, I am not the most important thing (laughs) Uh, the audience is and the show is. And so I try not to be disruptive. So in the last couple of years, I actually got a mirrorless um, Fuji camera and that is like is so much quieter. And I wish every performance photographer would do that because that's a really great leap in, in um, technology for that. Um, I love working with other artists. So as a toy camera photographer, I teach a lot of workshops and I love m- making that whole world accessible to them. And in the world of theater, I am I'm like dancing with the performers. So I don't have to be in there with all the rehearsals and all that stuff, but I get to go in there and create with them. And the images are so incredibly important to both getting the word out and advertising shows and also as an archive of the work. Yes. So I do promo stuff, studio work too, and then also photograph uh, live performances. And is that for you, is that a, is that a business Mm -hmm. venture? I get paid for that. But I've also, I had, I've had some exhibitions of that work. So I have now over 20 years of, of photographing or 25 plus years of photographing these scenes in Seattle. And I have a massive body of work of it. So I've had a a couple of shows so far, at least, um, pulling together, um, some of that work, both, um, from a collection of different people. And also from, there's a festival here in Seattle called the moisture festival, (laughs) which is a, I know, I know (laughs) as it's dumping rain out here, uh, which is a comedy variety festival. It, It has variety shows and brings in performers from all over the world to do these, um, variety shows for a month every year in March or April. Of course, it was one of the first things it was just about to start and it got shut down this year. Um, but I've been photographing that for right. 15 years. And yeah, wow, and so I've cool. literally photographed hundreds and hundreds of different artists who've been here for it, um, doing their five to 10 minute act. Um, and it is, I've developed a really great uh, sense of timing and anticipation of what what a juggler or an aerialist is going to do next because it goes so fast and I don't have a chance to rehearse or tech with them or try it out. I just have to shoot on the fly. Right. Yeah, no, it's really fun uh, collaborating with other types of artists. I've done a little bit of that as a photographer myself. I, um, gosh, way back in the day, I did a a really fun um, project. I don't even know if you could call it a project, but I, uh, I, I became friends with the gallery manager of this small gallery who was um, showing some of my prints. And um, she was like the main artist of the gallery and she had it was all painting that she did really really funky abstract representations with models and so what we did together is uh, she hired a model and she hired me to photograph the model in all of these really eccentric poses with you know interesting outfits and and things like that to to just use as references Mm -hmm. for her paintings and it was so much fun collaborating together because she had these visions of, of what she wanted her paintings to look like. But then also I needed to understand, you know, how to get the lighting right and, and get the image in a way that she could paint it. So that is it was really, really fun. Really, really fun. <laughs> it's such a great collaboration. Yeah. I And, and what I found, what's yeah. so interesting, so there's like the, 
there's an image and I think it's still on the front page of my website. Just, I love this image so much of this creepy looking guy. And <laughs> it is, <laughs> you'll see when you see it. And, um, that was a friend of mine who's a performer and he asked me to do promo photos for a show he was doing. And I was so new, like I didn't really know anything, but I put some black and white film in my little manual camera and I put a flash on it and I stood on the bench and took pictures of him playing the piano. And we came out with these like very, very cool pictures. And that picture is just very creepy and weird. Um, and then 20 years later or so, he did the show again. And I did more photos of it, which was really fun in color this time. And so there's this nice set of images. But at some point, we were standing around talking. I put up the old pictures on the wall, actually. And so we had an opening. And I was saying to him with some people around, like, God, it's just so amazing how I like nailed that character. I don't know how I could have done that. you know. And he said, well, it wasn't that. You actually informed the character. So I had made this photograph while he was still developing the piece. And then he took that image and he made the character like built it upon that image. And so I've kept that in mind. That's why I call it that I'm dancing with them because I've worked with all these people over the years. And a lot of people I've been working the same people and, and groups uh, for over 20 years um, that we're developing the characters together and trying to represent them in a way. And they can learn from what I do with them. I'm not just, I'm not just documenting and capturing what they do. Yeah, it's uh, it's almost like uh, when artists come together to collaborate, it's, it has like a very synergistic effect in terms of, you know, like it's greater than the sum of yeah, its parts. Yeah, absolutely. And so that that artist, his name was Kevin Joyce, just to put that out there. And then uh, he was part of a group at the time called Umo Ensemble. And they're a group that I've worked with for decades, literally, um, and like 1448 and the Moisture Festival and... Um, there's a lot of community arts groups um, that do events and festivals that I call celebration arts that I've worked with and documented. And a lot of that's actually Holga, um, but also kind of regular camera documentation. Um, and so there's this back and forth, um, both in, in helping those groups to advertise and archive and document, but also to kind of uh, help help us get perspective on what everybody's doing. Yeah, let's talk about the celebration arts organizations that you're a part of, because that's not something that I've ever had much intersection with myself. And I, I don't think it's really come up a whole lot in this podcast before. So what is, tell, tell us a little bit about like what, what those organizations are and what they do and kind of how, what's your involvement? Well, they're in kind them. of, you wouldn't really come across them very much doing landscape photography because you would be like, what are all these people? There's loud people with bands and big colorful things doing here. Get out of my landscape. Um, so I started um, participating in the, uh, the Fremont Summer Solstice Parade here in Seattle um, that was uh, has been done by the Fremont Arts Council for oh these many thirty some years, uh, and it's uh, it's kind of a handmade parade where people can come up and build whatever they want and make costumes and make floats. Um, it is a very analog type thing. There's no motors. It's all hand pushed floats. No um, you know no cars it's not that kind of a thing and no words which is a really interesting thing for this parade so everything has to be communicated in just the visuals without words um so i got involved with building things and helping make things and running the organization and always photographing it um and it's uh, the time that you spend putting it together and building is just as much if not more fun than the actual event itself um, and then through that, I got involved in lots of other things. Um, the Oregon Country Fair, 
which takes place every summer in July, uh, is an amazing festival. Um, and I, I've gone around the world photographing other parades and events, the, um, the May Day Parade in Minneapolis for a group called In the Heart of the Beast. And I went to Ireland, to Galway, for a group called Machnas. Does a Oh, I love, oh, God, I love yeah, Galway. I'm <laughs> dying to go back. <laughs> um, but I went there for a few weeks and helped them build their parade that they do during the Galway Festival in July. Um, and, but I, so, and I've been to Burning Man a bunch of times. Which is like, yeah, right. that, I was going to ask <laughs> you about another, that. <laughs> another type, you know, I like, I like comparing and contrasting them all, but that's, you know, I could write a book about all of that. Um, I love temporary intentional communities, uh, the way that they come together. So Burning Man and the Oregon Country Fair are ones where people are actually living together for a few days or a week. Um, and all the rest of these festivals, people come together to build and create. And they are also, um, all of the, one of the things is that these uh, create a way for people to um, learn to create art. So when somebody comes up to the f- preparation area for the solstice parade, you don't have to know anything about art. We've had people stumble up who've never done anything artistic in their life and go in their life and go, "What's this?" and and the tagline is kind of, "Here, hold this," you know. And then <laughs> they have a shirt that says that, "Here, hold this." And, and, and then you get them like painting or doing paper mache or whatever. And people have launched entire artistic careers out of getting involved by groups like this, because they're also communities and they're fun and they're friendly and they're welcoming. And everything that I'm talking about has been, you know, shut down completely this year, but in the, hopefully it will all come back um, because they're really, really lovely things to have in your life. And they've made my life here in the Pacific Northwest um, super duper fun for, you know, almost 30 years. Yeah. It seems like the, those kinds of um, uh, events are like a big part of your artistic journey. I'd be curious to hear about what are some of the direct benefits you have as an artist in terms of involving yourself in those types of events? Well, you know, the, I've met a ton of people, a ton of performers who then have hired me to photograph their, either do promo photos or um, photograph their shows. So, you know, it's turned into a business in that sense. Um, I had, I photographed one group that was here for the moisture festival called the flaming idiots. And you know, it's just sort of par <laughs> for the course in this realm. And then they, and then they did a show in New York at the new Vic theater in 42nd street in the Broadway neighborhood. It's not quite a Broadway theater, but it's right. It's on 42nd. And they had a, an absolutely massive billboard. It was like 15 by 30 feet. Or, or 60 feet long or something absolutely massive like that. And my pictures were all over it. And it was just unbelievably thrilling. Um, so I've worked with a lot of really, really great people through these things. And also I have places to stay all over the world because it's this huge community, <laughs> um, which is a definite perk for sure. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's funny because, you know, landscape and nature photographers are stereotypically and painfully mm-hmm. introverted and don't like to be around people and like to kind of do everything on their own. And I think one of the things that m- a lot of landscape photographers could do better, um, not all of them, but I think some, uh, is learn how to collaborate with other artists and, you know, grow their artistry through that collaboration and I think if anything to this conversation, I hope people take away is that that's, that's a really great way to expand yourself as an artist and also as 
you know, as a, in your business world too. I mean, that's like, it's all about connections. There's like 10 (laughs) different threads that I'm dying to go down as you say that, like all at the same time, (laughs) because it's so true. Um, I mean, just as a quickie, if you look at, you know, painters over history, there's like all these schools and there's all these people who paint kind of similarly and hang out. And the fact that they have a group has helped them all, you know, make waves in history and be known. Um, In my personal life, I have gone in the fine art world, I have gone to lots of photo conferences and and things like that. So I go to the Photo Plus Expo in New York every year because my family's there. And I've gone to the Society for Photographic Education conferences a lot. And I've gone to um, portfolio review events, Photo Lucida in Portland. And I went to PhotoFest once. Oh, yeah. Um, and I can trace like everything that's happened to me in the fine art world through conversations that I've had with people at events almost you know, you, you emailed me because I'm telling me about you. So, but, um, meeting people and showing the work and being enthusiastic, um, showing your work to people at portfolio reviews and meeting the other people who are at them, those things are incredibly, incredibly useful, um, at getting your work out there, meeting other people, finding people to talk to about this work, um, about this type of work. Uh, there's no end to the ways in which being social can help you as an artist. And if you're an anti-social person, um, which a lot of artists are, like you were saying, not in a bad way, just um, it it can be harder to get your work out there. And so there's really a disconnect necessarily between the quality of work that gets out there in the world um, (laughs) because some people who aren't, aren't as good of artists are more social and able to play the games and get the, get it out there. Uh, whereas some people who might be better artists don't know how to do it. And it's not easy. It's really not easy to get your work out there either as a fine artist or as a successful like commercial landscape photographer or uh, any other type. Yeah, I've been saying that for years. I mean, if you look at, I mean, I, I don't mean this like negatively, but if you look at the work of the people that are the most well-known in especially nature and landscape photography, and you compare it to the best of the best work that is out there, there's usually a fairly large divide. And the only explanation I can provide is that the people that are very well known are well known, not for their work because, or, but, but, but because of their ability to connect with other people and to offer something else. Well, there's, there's, so two things. One is that um, having a successful business doesn't matter what it is. It has a um, totally different skill set than whatever it is your business is. So that's also the same for teachers. Like being a teacher or an educator is like a completely different skill set than whatever it is you're teaching. And they're not necessarily related. So you have the same kind of thing with teachers. Some people are great teachers, not as good artists kind of thing. But being (laughs) successful, the portfolio reviews are in a way a great equalizer. They are, I, I think that they have done a massive amount to take into account those elements of um, that not everybody's good at sort of get, knocking on the door of a gallery and getting seen, but you can just sign yourself up for a portfolio review. You show up with your work and the people who are reviewing the work, you know, they'll see it. And even if you aren't the most eloquent or the most social, you have this context where you have 20 minutes one-on-one with people to show your work. So uh, especially for people who aren't great at like sort of getting out there or the, or if you live somewhere remote, um, I highly, highly encourage participating in those if we ever do them again. <laughs> <laughs> 20, yeah, 2022. 
<laughs> yeah, I actually thought about doing one of those uh, Photo Lucida conferences, not not necessarily for, um, I guess, you know, to have my portfolio reviewed, but mostly just for the connections that you can make with other people and kind of thinking about where that could take you in all kinds of different directions. I'm That's one of the things I get most excited about is kind of, you know, where will this relationship take me? I, I just love thinking about that or dreaming well, about you never, that sometimes. Oh, it's I think. so much like that. I mean, everyone who's there, not everyone, most of the people who are there are very social. And that's one of the things, great things about the Society for Photographic Education is that they're educators. And so they are, by definition, like more social photographers than most photographers. <laughs> and so when you go to those conferences, they're chatty. <laughs> you know, those people are chatty. Um, I, a landscape photography conference might not be as social. <laughs> um, but the portfolio reviews in any of these conferences are, are really, really great. And I have, like I said, you know, a lot of the things that have happened to me, get, being able to teach and getting the book have all come from people I've met at these conferences and, 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 and in ways that you wouldn't even know, like you just have to socialize with everybody because people evolve in their careers over years. And there are people who are doing one thing when you meet them or they're at the same level as you. And then they end up running a gallery or working at a museum and they met you 10 years ago and you were nice to them, even though they weren't when they, they when they were lowly, but then later if they like your work and they like you and you can, they can be in a position to offer you something. Yeah, that's something that I think a lot of people, including myself, tend to forget is that time is like a river. <laughs> you know, it's not like right now is the only time that matters. I mean, like you said, there could be someone who maybe is nobody today. And if they're going to remember you, how you treat them 10 years from oh, now when absolutely. they are Absolutely. I've so. seen people evolve in their careers. I've had students, you know, who've gone on to do great things and they they remember and, and, and people go on to do amazing things. And like, one person that I met, he worked at a, this is Ike Royer, who I met very early on. And he, he worked at a photo paper company, which is whatever, you know, he just, just worked at a photo paper company right sure. now I met him at Photo Plus Expo in New York. And then a few years later, he went on with Freestyle and he remembered me and they ended up being the distributor for the Holga and they created um, their advisory board of photographic professionals, which he called me and asked me if I wanted to be on. And and there were already some people, great people that I knew on there. And so I said, sure. And that opened up a, a massive amount of doors for me. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Isn't it amazing how those connections that seem like they might not mean anything can oftentimes turn mm -hmm. into something huge. Yeah. You never know. <laughs> never know. Yeah. Awesome, Michelle. Well, uh, winding down, uh, tell us about some art other artists that you think we would be interested in uh, either just learning about or having conversations with here on the um, podcast. Okay. I mean, most of the people that I'll draw from aren't landscapey people. A lot of them are in my book. Um, but sure. I've gotten to interact with some really, really fascinating, wonderful people over the years. Um, one of the people that I met that very first summer in Maine was Elizabeth Opalenik, who has been teaching photography forever and does a lot of alternative process work. Um, and she's, she's just a fascinating person. And in that same realm as Jill Enfield, um, but also a longtime teacher and has several books on alternative process, which might well be a lot of interest to your um, landscape folks. Um, because no matter yeah, how absolutely. you shoot, um, you can do endless sorts of things uh, with the images. A lot of people are, you know, taking digital images and creating negatives from them and then doing these old, old or alternative processes. There's a lot you can do. 
Um, Anne Arden McDonald is a photographer who um, she's in my book uh, for her Diana photos, but she does a ton of different stuff. And she has a show up currently in Woodstock. Well, now it, it won't still be up when you when this comes up, I think. But she, um, I don't even know how to describe it. <laughs> like the show that the show that she has up now is is taking old pieces of photo paper and and using like different chemicals on it to create artwork without even using a camera. But she also has lots of series of regular camera work. Anyway, she's an incredibly ongoingly generative artist uh, and fascinating person. Um, Ted Orland is somebody who is also in my book. He's been around for decades and has uh, taught many, many, many people. So I always meet people who've studied with him. Uh, lots of different types mm-hmm. of photography. Um, let's see, who else? Oh, Susan Bernstein is, is somebody who uh, also teaches a lot. She has a blog, which, oh, it's called Lens Scratch. And she lives in, Lens Scratch. Lens she lives scratch. in LA <laughs> and is just, um, connected with a lot of different people and she makes her own cameras. So, you know, she takes like oh, wow. a whole, like a whole gut toy camera and takes it down a level, <laughs> you know, of like building it from other pieces of stuff. And, and the imagery is even more like dreamy and distorted than the work that I do. Yeah. Um, so is that kind of like pinhole photography? No, or? it's not really. I mean, pinhole, right. But it's sort of in that realm of, uh, of doing minimal, right? Just totally. <laughs> what can you do with yeah. the least uh, uh, quality of gear possible? But they're and they're all unique. She makes she makes all her own cameras. Uh, That's awesome. Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> cool. Louvier and Vanessa are a couple uh, who live in um, New Orleans, and they're super duper creative, doing really interesting photos with lots of, using lots of different techniques. Um, you can look, my, my book has 50 different photographers in it. So pretty much all of them, I think are really interesting folks, but, um, those are, those are, uh, cool. some of the ones that I think have uh, a lot of different things going on and are, and are pretty social and communicative. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. We'll definitely, uh, put a link to your book in the show notes so that if people are interested, they can check Great. that out. Thanks. Yeah. Well, Michelle, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I feel like the toy camera it could be a very interesting um, uh, device through which people can distill down their artistic vision. So I appreciate you kind of telling us, telling yeah, us all I about encourage, it. You know, even if, even if most of your audience is landscape photographers with fancy high quality cameras, I encourage you to bring one of these cameras out there and just give it a try and you can just shoot and you can even make little panoramas by partially advancing the film or, or whatever it is, give it a try and see what you get, compare it to the images and, you know, have some fun with it or just go out with just them without all that heavy gear, um, appreciate the limitations, like you were saying, of just go out with one prime lens someday. And, and um, you can spend more time focusing on what you're going to photograph versus deciding what lens to use or all those kind of things. So I, I just encourage people to have some fun with it because that's, that's the main thing, that they're pretty fun. And this has been really great talking to you. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks to Michelle for joining me on the podcast this week and for the thought-provoking and engaging discussion on toy cameras and creativity. I had a wonderful time. 
I'm really excited to see what people are able to do with uh, toy and plastic cameras. So if you have one and have some images, I'd love to see them over on the Facebook page or on Patreon. I appreciate the inspiration. All right, well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. We'll see you next week.